five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hi, welcome back, space enthusiasts. My guest this week is Dan Katz. He's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Orbital Sidekick from San Francisco. And Orbital Sidekick is putting up a hyperspectral Earth observation constellation. Now, if you don't know what hyperspectral is, don't worry, we'll go through it. We explain the technology. It's really cool tech and what the use cases are. So this is one worth listening to. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast and we'll also put that link in the episode notes and lastly you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space hey welcome back space enthusiasts time for another episode of the space business podcast very excited today to talk about another really cool earth observation business and my guest for that is dan katz he's the ceo and co-founder of orbital sidekick welcome dan thank you so much for having me pleasure to be here no, it's great. And Dan, why don't we start off as usual? And could you please give us the elevator pitch on Orbital Sidekick? Absolutely. Happy to. Uh, so at Orbital Sidekick, we are building the most robust remote sensing and analytics capability in existence uh, with a core focus on sustainability. Uh, and that means that really, from a logistical standpoint, we are launching a constellation of hyperspectral satellites Happy to go into what hyperspectral means a little bit later. Launching a constellation of hyperspectral satellites uh, to monitor on our go-to-market strategy uh, is energy infrastructure. So specifically oil and gas pipelines uh, mm. for methane leaks, oil spills, regulatory compliance. Um, so we leveraging these uh, this constellation of, of hyperspectral satellites. It provides global persistent monitoring service uh, for our customers. Mm. And we have... So, so we're we're pretty vertically integrated. We 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 have our satellites. We have the uh, we collect the data. We analyze the data ourselves in house to extract actionable intelligence, and then we deliver those mm -hmm. that intelligence, those insights directly to our end users on the ground. And so, um, you know, we're we're based in San Francisco. Uh, we're a, you know relatively modest sized team. We run pretty lean. About thirty of us here. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've got our uh, we've we've had two missions launched uh, over the last few years, and and uh, two space missions, and we've have six more satellites uh, slated for launch in 2023. Uh, so mm -hmm. yeah, uh, just excited about the progress so far. Okay, very cool. So let me let me just ask you to define like a few of the terms you use there. Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, for, for better or worse, since this is meant to be a podcast so that also um, mm. technical people can follow along, do you mind sort of quickly summarizing what, what hyperspectral actually means yeah. and how it's different from some of the other Earth observation sensors that people may be more familiar with? Yes, absolutely. And and so, right, there's a lot of different modalities out there uh, in, mm. in Earth observation these days, which is really exciting. Uh, I'm happy to dive into to some of the other ones as well and where hyperspectral fits in. But the way I like to explain how hyperspectral is kind of well let's start with you know the the camera that's on your on your cell phone right it's uh when people take it take a picture generally you're you're looking at visual data you're looking at three wide color bands red green and blue that are combined together to get the image that you see on, on mm -hmm. your phone or on your camera and that gives you you know object uh spatial information what's the shape of that object and what's the color of that object in a, in a small region 
of, of visible light. With hyperspectral, what we're doing, instead of just those three data points of red, green, and blue, we're looking at hundreds of color bands in the visible and infrared light region. Uh, so we have, so instead of three data points, we have 500 data points. And what that allows us to do is basically chemically fingerprint each object in our data set. So everything reflects and absorbs light in a unique manner. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that's, and we see it in, in the visual spectrum and that's how we can identify something as green or red or blue. Um, or some variation of that, uh, but there's there's other uh, absorption and reflectance features that present itself in the infrared light region, and hyperspectral allows us to look at visual and infrared with very high spectral resolution, and so we can identify those absorption and and emit and reflectance features, uh, and that allows us to, as I said before, basically chemically fingerprint that object. So. Uh, methane is is kind of the hot button topic today. Mm. Uh, so so methane is not something that you are going to see if it, the methane gas or CO two or other types of gaseous emissions or plumes. It's not something you're going to see with the naked eye or with, with the camera on your on your cell phone. Um, but with hyperspectral, because we can pick up because methane has very unique absorption features. Um, throughout the electromagnetic spectrum in, in both visual mm -hmm. and in the infrared region, um, our hyperspectral cameras can, can identify those features and therefore identify a methane leak. And there, there are a hyperspectral, and Earth observation in general is pretty application agnostic. Um, and, but what we found is that for our go-to-market strategy, really focusing on the energy sector to be able to identify things like methane leaks, um, but also looking at oil spills, so identifying the spectral mm -hmm. signature of the oil spill or uh, erosion or land movement or topographical changes, uh, changes in vegetation along a pipeline right-of-way due to an underground leak of methane mm -hmm. or oil. So that, and and so if like a, a healthy a healthy plant is gonna have a different spectral signature, a different way uh, that our camera's gonna see it differently than uh, a, a dying or, or unhealthy plant or something that's been starved of say oxygen due to a, mm -hmm. an underground leak. So there's all of these different really, you know, you know, the clever marketing thing is right. You know, you can see the unseen or, um, you know, that, or, you know, make, making the, the invisible visible, whatever, however you want to put it in that sense. But the point is that you are, you're really just amplifying to, you know, orders of magnitude, your ability to see beyond just what your eyeballs would see or what, a, what a normal camera would see. Um, so that's the yeah. really exciting thing about hyperspectral and what the other thing as well is this technology, you know, we, we did not develop hyperspectral technology like orbital psychic did not, this isn't like a, a brand new thing that that's, that's unique to us necessarily, but it's been around for a while. Um, but it's been generally relegated to either government programs, like large, like defense and intelligence programs, mm. Uh, or it's been on the commercial side, there's been some use for it for um, precision agriculture. I mentioned before about looking at vegetative stress or disease or other things that be used for. Um, but at a very small scale, maybe, you know, either handheld sensors, maybe in an aircraft. But because part of it, as I said before, you have, um, you know, your, your normal, your, your normal earth, uh, visible uh, range cameras that are on a lot of Earth observation satellites today, like with Digital Globe mm -hmm. or Planet or Black Sky and others, which are very useful for their case. But again, they they have three three data points per pixel. So you have uh, three, to, for lack of a better word, let's call it three bits of information, where we have 500 bits of information per pixel. So that's a huge amount of data to manage and handle, right? You have you have a hundred yeah. over a hundred times more data per image. It sounds um, like a data so, scientist's dream, <laughs> right? Exactly, and this is and so. Whereas a couple, maybe t even 10, 20 years ago, um, doing large scale hyperspectral projects were, were really challenging because it it had to be done pretty manually. Um, 
you know, and but now because you have cloud compute capability, you have mm. onboard processing, edge compute capability. Like we we process data actively on the on our satellites to to try to reduce the data burden. These are enabling technologies that that we can tie into and leverage to to make this possible. Where again, like 10, 15 years ago. This co- we could not like this company could not exist with the the lack of infrastructure that was in place before. So because yeah, I guess I guess in terms yeah. of the variables, um, you have 500 bands, and then I guess you would mm-hmm. have the coordinates, right, um, mm-hmm. and the timestamp, right. right. So it's really yeah, yeah. It's really quite a big data set. Yeah, all all of the metadata that goes along with it, right, and everything like that too. So it's it's a it's a huge amount of data, and and you know this is not unique to hyperspectral, right? Of course, you know there's um, uh, there there are other and and there's uh, yeah there's also um, so you have hyperspectral, and then uh, uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with uh, like Landsat, which is a um, a NASA NOAA mm-hmm. satellite that I mean you see you everyone on the planet has seen Landsat data because they use it for Google Maps, yeah. um, and it's at a lower resolution, but it, and what they use is what they call multi-spectral. Um, yes. and so, <laughs> I was going to ask you. So, what's the right. difference? But is yeah, that, yeah, is exactly. That, right. It just means fewer bands, right? And right, and that, and yeah. It, at the end of the day, it means fewer bands. And and to be honest, there's there's some amount of subjectivity. I think of what kind of what's the threshold to go from like a, a you know a, a multi-spectral to hyperspectral. Um, you know, I, I think generally once you are, you know, in the, you know, 10, once you get above 10, 20 bands, maybe that's when people start thinking, okay, that's more like the hyperspectral-ish range. Um, but it's almost like a marketing thing. Uh, I mean, yeah. I would say that we are, so Landsat has, I think like 16 bands or, and okay. also they have various um, Landsat satellites that have better tech than others. And so, you know, like, 12, 16 bands, kind of like your multi-spectral range. Yeah. So with, with hyper, like I said, hyperspectral for us, you know, I think it's, we think of it as when you have like a hundred or hundreds of bands, I think that's more kind of what we're thinking of because that's, that's when you are really looking at that really fine spectral resolution and you can see those, you can really identify those unique absorption and reflectance features in a spectral profile um yeah and with yeah. multi-spectral you're not really getting that you just kind of have it's still very broad buckets of of spectral information um so you're not gonna be able to do that same chemical thing yeah and it, hyperspectral it just sounds it sounds cooler than multi-spectral right it sounds like it's oh, gonna happen, like 50 percent on your pre-money valuation just and, by and now of course right, right. <laughs> and then and then of course you know now there's like there's people saying, oh, there's ultra spectral and that's, you know, so thousands, thousands, you again. thousands okay. of spectral bands or, you know, I mean, there's, yes. it, you know, you can, the marketing behind it, <laughs> you can do whatever you want uh, on, on the name, the nomenclature. Um, and the, I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do. You can, you know, maybe you don't need the high, like, like you can. So one of the nice things about actively having our own satellites that we have is that we can, we can control our sensors and kind of what what bands we focus in on um, to get higher resolution, or um, both on the spatial spe- on the spatial side and the spectral side. And and so we can have. There's a lot of so certain customers might want higher spectral resolutions so or more bands in the mm. visible region, or they might want more ban- spectral yeah. bands in the infrared region. So we can, we can actively uh, select and, 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 and kind of have that, uh, that almost bespoke capability for certain customers, which is nice. Um, and, and so as you're looking at, I, I think that really the key thing here is, is just, you know, whether it's multi-spectral, hyperspectral or ultra-spectral, whatever it is, Ultra-spectral. The, the, the key, the key thing here though, is that you always like hyperspectral is not necessarily the best answer to every problem. Um, and maybe if you're, the key though is to identify what is your go-to-market strategy and what problem are you solving? And so does your technology align with that? And not just to get caught up in, yeah. oh, I just need to get the the most spectral oh, information. Yeah, yeah, sure. 
I mean, so, which which so is think, of course yeah. typically what happened with engineers is sort of like we can have more bands, let's have more bands. But so I was going to ask you, I mean, right, in terms yeah. of the bands, so I so, so actually I learned something new. I didn't know that people. I was going to ask you whether there was something coming up beyond hyper, and I guess mm -hmm. there is ultra spectral. But <laughs> it's still sort of a an upper bound that, and it could be, I guess, is there an upper bound a in terms of I guess the physics, the technology, but then kind of alluding to, or so, so kind of going to what you're alluding to, is there an upper bound also be, beyond which it just kind of becomes commercially stupid for lack of a better word where it's just you don't need higher spectral resolution anymore yeah i mean i i think the so there's always a trade-off and when when you add more spectral when you get finer and finer spectral resolution you are limiting the number and, and i'll try not to get super technical on this but but just mm -hmm. i'll start pretty technical and then we can we can Uh, zoom out from there, right? Okay. So, so at the end of the day, you want when you have a telescope and and then you have a camera behind it, you are you're bringing in light and photons of light, right? And if you if you let's say you had I just had one spectral band, like a panchromatic camera, which um, the digital globes mm -hmm. some of them have that, and they get really high spatial resolution. But they have one spectral bucket, then all of those all of that light and all the photons of light can go into that one spectral bucket. Um, which is good because you want good signal, right? Sure. Signal to noise ratio is really important. And if you have, if your noise is big, is outweighs your signal, then you, you it, it's going to be, let's from, you know, I guess in just a lack of a better term, it, you will be able to differentiate what's in your image and it'll mm -hmm. just be noise and, you're, and it's useless. Um, as you add more spectral channels, you're effectively dividing the light that comes in, the amount of photons into more mm -hmm. and more buckets. So each bucket gets fewer and fewer photons, right? And mm -hmm. so that hurts your signal. So at a certain point, your it's a diminishing rate of return because you're just going to have such like okay, you have you have thousands of these spectral channels and And yeah. uh, and but you're dividing the photons into all of these, so you have so the signal to noise ratio is just very poor, spread out across. So it doesn't even so you're yeah. So you you, you lose and and then what that means is like oh well you know I have to increase the size of my my telescope then and mm. get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So now like we have a 45 centimeter aperture. Uh, Uh, telescope in front of our sure. camera, which is big, right? That's almost half, like, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a large light bucket to let in. So, because we need, we okay. want as good signal to noise ratio as possible for hundreds of bands. But if we were to go to thousands of spectral channels, then now we're talking about like a, a one meter diameter telescope or bigger, and that's massive, right? I mean, we're starting, you know, that's, you're starting to mm. look at, like, that's a, you know, these are, now you're starting to look at like the digital globe worldview satellites, which are, you know, half a billion dollar satellites, so massive, or, or now you're looking at NASA type programs for billion yeah. dollar programs yeah. to have these that's meter, true. two meter telescopes, right? It's just, it's a massive undertaking. So That's there's a physics limitation, um, and there's always a trade-off. And then you know, actually, we started out, and this is yeah. So physics physics rears its ugly head when it comes in hyperspectral, unfortunately. Uh, and so you, there's always a trade-off. And then so the the key is to not like I'm an engineer by training and physicist mm -hmm. by train by like academic background. So I mean, I'm I'm always for like the next. You know, I always want better and better and right. better tech. Um, but what, what's been very grounding for us is having, again, having this kind of vertical structure where having the satellites and the data acquisition and the analytics and the product, the end user product development all all in one under one roof, we we can be very it's like, okay, we don't we don't need like, we know exactly what we need to deliver the product mm -hmm. to our end users. Customer so wants. like I And, and that helps us to, to stay focused on on what problems we need to solve and which technology we need to develop. But um, yeah, so. Makes sense. Okay, so just coming back to, uh, because you mentioned the photons, and I realized I should have asked you before for the benefit of probably most of our non-technical listeners, where does that leave um, um, multi-spectral and hyperspectral technology and sensors with regard to operating at, at nighttime and uh, cloud cover? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. So, you know, the it, as you're, so for the, Looking at visible to near infrared light region, so um, uh, which is um, like the 400 nanometer to 1,000 nanometer wave wavelengths, 
um, which is uh, a lot. A lot of companies are kind of in that range. Um, mm-hmm. You're you're really limited to um, you know j- just you're really limited to the uh, you know daytime no cloud conditions. Um, we we go farther into the infrared. We go go all the way up to twenty five hundred nanometers, um, and and that allows us to we we can't necessarily see through clouds to a to a very good degree. But there are certain things we can that that we can see, and and especially when it comes to you know you start looking at uh, emissivity from um, uh, like very hot uh, events like fires or, or explosions or plumes, things that are more on the defense and intelligence side, honestly. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of, and that's the other side of our business, by the way. So we have energy customers on the commercial side, you know, the oil and yeah. gas customers and others um, there. And then we have defense and intelligence as the other half of our business. So, mm. you know, we have, that is, so they're right. We, I would, I guess, in short, we are an ideal Ideally, we would have, you know, clear skies during the day, like that's our bread and butter. And that's how we kind of baseline our capacity and how we expect to perform. Um, But there is some limited operation that we can do in cloudy and nighttime conditions. Um, But we, those are generally reserved for non-commercial operation. Um, And then, Mm -hmm. but but I I do want to make, we're not like a SAR. So you write the synthetic aperture radar folks. They are like, we, we don't have the performance at, you know, through clouds. Yeah. So that's, 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 I guess the other thing we should point out for the non-technical listeners, right? Because SAR is an an active sensor, right? This, this is passive, right? What you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. And, and so, right. There's always pros and cons of, of any technologies. And, and so, right. And and so SAR has that, that passive sensor, capability that allows them to see at night and through clouds and it's a really powerful tool um but the downside of star of course then is that you're really only looking at kind of one data point right so what's what's mm-hmm. the elevation right so you are it is a um but what's a really powerful thing is combining star and hyperspectral and mm-hmm. and so and that's something that i'm happy to chat about too is how I, I think i said this earlier that hyperspectral is not necessarily the end-all be-all for earth observation and no no single modality is right there's no magic bullet that's going to solve every single problem there's always limitations to every single modality um, and phenomenology so i think data fusion is is going to be increasingly important um, as we have more access to different Mm -hmm. commercial constellations like a yeah so a a fusion of sar hyperspectral and high-res optical though that's that's going to be a very powerful product it's something that we're already looking at doing um, a bit on the commercial side. And then, of course, a lot of our government customers are very, on the intelligence community mm. side, are very interested in data fusion sure. and how we're putting all these modalities together. So speak, speaking of data fusion, I mean, okay, even before you fuse it with other sensors, I mean, just uh, as we talked about before, like 500 bands and all of the metadata, I mean, this is just a ton of data, right? And so <clears throat> n- never mind, like you pointed out, of course, we we now have the capability here on Earth to process this in a very effective way and do machine learning. But but we do have these, at least for the moment, we, you know, even on this podcast, we talk regularly about, you know, the bottleneck of bringing data back to Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, are you guys doing any, like, onboard processing with this or are you actually really sending the whole batch back to earth right so we are, we're absolutely doing onboard processing um and we are bringing certain data sets back down to earth as a as a whole so it really it, mm. it is customer dependent so again on the kind of on the commercial the two halves of our business and, and it, they complement each other for this reason so for commer on our for the commercial side so if if i may if any any commercial customer, they're, they're not versed, well versed in hyperspectral. They don't have a room of hyperspectral mm. data scientists and PhDs like we do who can analyze the raw hyperspectral data yeah, and the algorithm and get the intelligence. We don't want they don't want to do that. That's you know, it's not to their best interest. So we just give them the intelligence. And so so the good news for that is that so that we can do a lot of that processing on board. You know, we we know which signatures we're looking for, we're looking for the methane signatures and the oil signatures, um, uh, the construction activity and a lot of other 
features and products that we have for our customers. We can do a lot of that on board and just identify where that anomalous condition occurs and basically just send down a GPS coordinate, right? Just a few a few kilobytes worth of data. Um, it, that's not actually really an image. It's just, it's mm-hmm. the intelligence, right? Where Where is that incident occurring? Um, and so that obviously helps immensely with our data burden for commercial customers. Now, if we do find a very high uh, value, you know, if we do find a methane leak or something like that, we will we will generally bring also bring that data down eventually uh, as well. And we do have uh, very high throughput radios on our on our spacecraft, so we can get gigabit per second downlink capability, which 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 helps mm-hmm. alleviate those issues. Um, but we, yeah, we're not planning on bringing down all of the data we're capturing uh, on the government side. They are more interested in getting the whole data set, but but they're starting to lean more into the onboard you know, intelligence as well, um, which is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> that these are things that we're you know we're, we're we're actively kind of working to to see how this is going to be fleshed out on the you know, deliver uh, delivering derived uh, analytics products to on the government too. Um, but but yeah, the data ball neck will continue to be an issue, especially as we get uh, continue to add capability to our constellation in the future, get um, bigger swath width so we can get more coverage, more satellites, mm-hmm. just more data, more data, more data. And our and our data scientists always want more training sets. So they would love to have us bring sure. down as much data as possible. Um, so I, like I said, the, how, do, how do we solve that? Onboard processing, high throughput KA band radios um, for gigabit mm-hmm. per second rate downlink, more ground stations uh, to allow us to download more frequently. And then the last piece, while we don't have them integrated yet on the these first six satellites for launch year, we are already in the process of getting uh, development work for, for the next the next uh, eight satellites after this uh, that we will have um, uh, optical inner satellite uh, relay. Uh, that was my next question. Tunnels. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, so the OISL, I think the explosion of OISL demand with the SDA transport layer, uh, so the pull on the government side has been really mm-hmm. great to help spur innovation there and demand. Um <clears throat> And then, so I, you know, I think the, we're still trying to figure out the commercial cases there, you know, for, for our commercial customers, I'm not sure that the OISLs will be a major um, differentiator for us, but certainly on the government, the low latency yeah. um, uh, data capability or, um, you know, uh, yeah, data download capability is going to be critical. So I think that's something that we're, we're very excited about integrating for our next generation. Yeah, yeah. And then how does your business model then actually work? It sounds like for your, uh, at least for your commercial customers, maybe for the government as well, it's, it's a lot basically um, the customers actually specifically tasking the satellite, right? Probably to look at a certain facility or something. So I was wondering how much of that your business comes from that versus maybe you're just also just collecting data, building a library, which you can then monetize. Is, is it one of one or the other or is it both? So the the main, on the commercial side, uh, what we do, and so for our, for the oil and gas pipeline operators, um, you know, so let's say, so we have, I mean, there's publicly, there's some stuff is public, others is not public yet. Um, mm. Hopefully will be soon. So we have a um, like we have we have a contract energy transfer, which is one of the largest pipeline operators in the world. Mm. Um, they have 120,000 miles of pipeline in North America. We're not monitoring all of those pipelines yet. Our goal is to, is to get to that point. But you know, so if you have if you have you know hundreds of thousands of miles of pipeline, the idea would be that we're we would sign a effectively monitoring services contract. That you know, on a on it on a routine basis, we will be uh, capturing data over your 100,000 miles of pipeline. On you know, let's say once a week, and it will be at a you know at this dollar amount per mile per revisit. Okay. And so that's how you build that that model. So it's really based on monitoring frequency. Um, and you know, so they so it, there's not much change, right? Like pipelines are. Are stationary <laughs> they, you know they're not really like moving yeah, sure. the targets around right so it's 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 like okay we know your pipelines are we're going to be monitoring them frequently and then we'll just charge you based on how frequently you would like them monitored and then there's a 
package analytics package on top of that, right? So it's, well, I let you know if there's a methane leak or uh, construction activity, uh, if there's topographical erosion changes or vegetative changes along the right of way that would indicate uh, an issue. So, um, and that all is under a regulatory compliance bucket. There, there's right pipeline operators half lie with with certain government regulations to ensure the the safe operation of their of their pipelines. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how that that monitoring service package is built, um, and that's that initial go to market. And from the you know, and, and then there's if they have certain fixed facilities or offshore facilities, we can add those in. Um, but yeah, it is mainly task based in that sense. We're not strip mapping the entire globe mm-hmm. like planet labs is we just don't have it yeah part of it's that capacity issue and downlinking issue of trying to yeah. all that hyperspectral data down at least initially eventually though so with these again with the first six satellites next year it's really specific to the paying customers and then on the government side they, they have you know tasks that they're going to want to do i'm sure monitoring ukraine and all the you know mm. syria north korea like those kind of areas right um on the other side of the globe um then you have but eventually once we get another eight satellites up so once we have 14 total then we will be able to map more completely the entire globe and look at more developing a uh, hyperspectral atlas of the globe um and then being able to sell access to that type of uh archival uh uh, imagery and, and data. So that that's our kind of our growth strategy at the moment. Um, but yeah, it, it'll take a little while because of that massive data burden to kind of build up that capacity. Yeah. So your total target size was uh, 14 satellites. And so what kind of um, uh, coverage, you said it's global coverage and what kind of revisit rate would that get you to? So, so but the, well, 14 is kind of like on the next one. Honestly, we're, we're actually putting in place a production line type capability where, you know, we, we plan to put up many more than 14, uh, but that's kind of just the next block uh, getting there. So once we get to 14, though, that means that we'll be able to map every inch of the globe with hyperspectral imagery um, every week. Uh, mm-hmm. But then because we have pointing capability, we'll be able to image okay. most of our customers uh, every day uh, and certain mm-hmm. customers multiple times a day. So it really kind of depends on where exactly or what kind of the use cases, but the kind of the general sizing is that getting to that kind of a weekly hyperspectral atlas capability. And then from there, you target specific uh, customer needs on a multiple times a day basis. And I guess while we're talking about resolution, and so we already talked about spectral resolution, now temporal mm-hmm. resolution, I guess the remaining question, one of the remaining questions is then spatial resolution. Right. And I guess that's a little bit different for you guys, right? Because um, I guess maybe it's not that meaningful to think of like, oh, it's like uh, X inches, I guess, because you're at least for now, you're sort of looking at stuff like methane leaks. Is it sort of looking, are you looking at sort of like parts per million resolution? Or how are you kind of looking at this capability? Yeah, it's, so yeah, it, it's always. I mean, spatial resolution is. I mean, it, it is an important piece of the puzzle. It's it's not um, something that you can ignore, and then it goes into your uh, the the precision and the thresholds for how you can detect certain uh, spectral features. So. Um, if, you, if your if your pixel size is very big, like let's say you have a 30 meter GSD, so 30 meter pixel size, which a lot of hyperspectral satellite tech has kind of lived in that 30 meter GSD historically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know that's 30 meter by 30 meter. That's 900 square meters of uh, you know of land or ocean, wherever you're looking at. So if you have um, you generally best practices. You need at least twenty percent fill fraction of a pixel in order of, of a certain substance in order to identify that that substance is in that pixel. Um, otherwise, you get too much. Again, goes back to signal to noise ratio, spectral mixing, all that stuff. So if you're, so if you have a small of a, a plume of methane and it and it you're trying to fill twenty percent of a nine hundred square meter pixel, you need a pretty big plume. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So it, it's so that that that's kind of a one way to look at it. Uh, there, there's, um, there's obviously a lot more other ways that you can look at it too, but that's kind of I think a good way to, to start. Um, so for us, we what we did is we say okay, using that kind of twenty percent fill fraction concept as a as a baseline, you know where 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 it's like a happy place for us to live. That's also is going to 
plus get signal to noise and not blow up the cost of the spacecraft. We don't have to build a one meter telescope and things like that. So we came in um, at about eight meter GSD. So eight by eight, so mm -hmm. 64 square meters. So 20%, yeah. right, of 64, you're looking 12, uh, 13 uh, meters. And that that is a, that ends up being, you know, closer to the 100, well, we think of it not as a PPM or PPB for methane, we look at rates. So mm. what our customers want is somewhere around the 100, 100 kilograms per hour uh, rate for for a, for a release. So that I think that's kind of the happy happy place for for space based methane monitoring about 100 kilograms per hour. Trying to get less than that is a really really big challenge. Um, there's a lot of factors that can go into affecting those calculations. Uh, mm. And then also for eight meters, that allows us to do like vehicle detection, um, construction activity, which is a really big threat to and security mm -hmm. threats as well, which which are really the like other piece to not just pipeline monitoring, but for a whole host of other kind of infrastructure monitoring. Um, so that's that's kind of where where we're living in that kind of eight meter GSD for hyperspectral. But yeah, it's not quite the same as I mean, yeah, you're getting 30 centimeter GSD for the you know the worldview digital globe yeah. satellites. And, and so but it's not a one-to-one -one comparison. We actually have yeah. a a panchromatic camera that also on our system it takes advantage of the same telescope, which is a different camera on the back end. So we can get down to one and a half meter GSD in our panchromatic camera. Um, and mm -hmm. in future generations, we'll have down to about 50 centimeter GSD for our panchromatic. So a single, so only a single spectral channel, but allows us to contextualize some of the hyperspectral data. So we're obviously not as concerned about spatial, but it still plays a role in kind of the fidelity of the spectral information you're looking at. Um, so, it, but it's, it's always a balance and it's always kind of going back and forth and everything is always a trade. It's, uh, GSD versus signal to noise ratio versus, um, you know, size, weight and power for your, for your satellite. So it's, it's, you know, these are the complex problems that, that anyone in earth observation always having these challenges and same with, it doesn't, it's hyperspectral, it's optical, yeah. it's SAR, it's, it's everyone, right? So it's, there's always the trade-offs. Yeah. And so there's a couple of follow-up questions that I to try, try to make it more sort of, I don't know, a practical or tangible for, for people. So, so one, um, I think probably every listener has heard or, or knows that there was this famous, uh, pipeline leak of the, the pipe, the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline between Russia and Germany. Mm -hmm. I assume right. that was sort of like the mother of all leaks, right? I assume there was a massive leak and that you would have detected that and other people would have detected that from space, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And right. And so there, there's some, you have the Nord Stream pipeline. There's uh, there's other, there's a massive methane leak in uh, Los Angeles in Cal here in California uh, the Aliso Canyon methane leak uh, okay. from, I don't know, maybe about six or seven years ago that was another massive release that some satellites were, were able to detect even with you know very low resolution because it was such a massive leak mm -hmm. so i think you know, the, those big massive super emitters um you know those are obviously very important to identify and those are things that we can identify however that's those are ones that kind of the obvious ones right okay yep, yeah clearly there's a leak there and the operator is 99 percent of the time those massive leaks they're going to know it pretty quickly right it's a huge huge mm. release and there's other systems they can have in place it the, the problem that we're seeing a lot in the industry is the kind of those ones that are just under the super emitter kind of classification they're they're big enough to have substantial uh you know effects on you know contributing to uh greenhouse emissions um and product loss for our customers but are but are under the threshold of what maybe some of their existing monitoring systems can can identify uh, like tr pressure transducers within the pipeline mm. or um, or just, you know, day-to-day -day field operations. So that's where that 100 kilograms per hour range, I think, is is really critical because that makes up a huge bulk of the of the releases that, mm. that exist and then contribute to, like, when taken together in the aggregate, um, can start to outweigh these massive super emitters that 
people are going to identify anyway, just because they're tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of kilograms per hour or millions of kilograms per hour that are, you know, it, yeah, I mean, you're going to, you're going to see the the nuclear bomb go off, but you, you maybe you're not going to see yeah. like the, the pipe bomb go off. Right. So you, you have, yeah. it's, it's the, that kind of level. Right. Um, yeah. And for the, for the smaller leagues, I mean, you mentioned field operations. I mean, are there any alternatives that are really viable? I mean, uh, do people like fly drones? But I guess drones have a limited range, right? So it becomes very complex. Very yeah. Complex. So so there there are there definitely are aerial uh, solutions that exist, um, and and we've actually partnered with some of them. And I think it is it's still it's still a bit of a system of systems type of an operation. So. You know, we view ourselves as kind of this persistent eye in the sky kind of safety blanket to monitor yeah, that, those, those 120,000 miles of pipeline for energy transfer, right? Our goal is to eventually monitor all of them, but it's spread. Those miles are spread all across the North American continent, right? So trying to monitor that with an aircraft or much less a drone is a very daunting, uh, mm. uh, operationally expensive um, proposition. And so, and they, but... But let's say we identify an issue. We say this is there's a lot of problems occurring in this area of your pipeline. Then you can deploy a drone or a person in a truck to go. I look at the more micro scale, you know, monitoring of, of that area. So we can help deploy certain resources much more effectively and efficiently. Okay, understood. Just a couple of questions to finish up on sort of the 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 the, the tech architecture, and then I do want to talk about uh, the customers a little bit more. So the, the 45 centimeter aperture so what kind of satellite size does that translate to in the end and i also wanted to ask you like why you guys decided to build your own satellite rather than um, hosting this well yeah yeah happy to address both those so um we so 40 uh so that means that so 45 centimeter telescope aperture that means that we have it's the the, the mass of the satellite is almost exactly 100 kilograms which i think falls squarely okay. in the kind of small sat or micro sat small region sat. yeah Right. Um, right. So it's, 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 a uh, you know, it's the size of a, we were trying to, we were, we were in the, we were in the manufacturing space yesterday. And I was trying to think of a way to, to, to what's a good analogy for the Cause it's not, it's bigger than a dishwasher. Maybe it's, yeah, maybe yeah. it's the size of like a washing machine. Maybe that's a good, good way to think of it. Um, and then, uh, so we, we don't build the satellites in house. We do contract out um the actual build so we we work with a company called astro digital um sure. they they mm -hmm. are about an hour away from us uh here in the san francisco bay area um so they have a manufacturing facility and that there you know that's where it's all put together assembled integrated and tested um but you know i think we and we we did look at hosted platform at some point uh we had talked with loft orbital um who's another mm -hmm. like a hosted set, uh, platform and, and a few other folks um yeah the, the, the challenge is really um you know it comes the the telescope we have is is, is uh i think one person once described it as uh very fluffy in that it, it doesn't weigh a lot but it takes up a decent amount of volume so it's hard to be on a okay. on a uh on a shared platform with a lot of other payloads and and while mm -hmm. we're not very power hungry we are data hungry so uh mm. you know trying to share downlinking sure. and things like that is a challenge yeah, and then of course just having the yeah. yeah and then and then having the operational control of your own and not having to worry about other other payloads or other things on there it's just um you know it just didn't really make fiscal sense for us um so you know we're we're really happy with our manufacturing partner people are able to do that and um and do it really well uh so yeah we, we didn't um yeah, so I think that's just kind of the model that that worked out best for us. Okay, and this is, the, the, the satellites are flying in what what orbital altitude? Uh, so they're they're going on the SpaceX rideshare missions, the transporter missions. So those are all mm -hmm. launching to uh, you know, sun synchronous orbit. So for for the listeners who are more of like a, a polar orbit, um, and mm -hmm. they're launching to uh, nominally five hundred and twenty five kilometers altitude. Okay, so you guys, um, this is this is always an interesting question for many people these days. Any constellation operators? Are you? How much are you guys thinking about sort of like you know space debris and 
you know, ultimately having to do collision avoidance maneuvers and how to do this. I assume you guys have onboard propulsion, that that whole sort of complex of topics. Yeah, no, that's um, that's a great question. So, you know, we are, it's always a concern. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I we actually, interestingly, we do not have onboard propulsion for these first six satellites. And we're still weighing whether we're going to add it later because um, we do meet the deorbit requirements of the FCC mm-hmm. um, without propulsion. Uh, what we oh yeah sure I'm I'm I'm, yeah. more, I'm more thinking sort of like in case you have to move out of the way. No no of course so so what we've seen from so I'm I'm a I like to say I'm a recovering propulsion engineer that was my that was my job okay. uh, before starting this company uh, so very very well versed in, in the propulsion uh, uh, technology and, and use cases for it mainly for geo stationary communication satellites, but also for some Leo small sats as well. But, uh, you know, that I think the collision avoidance stuff from that you're seeing the propulsion itself, I, I'm not sure if it's really adding a lot of value, um, to, to mm-hmm. that, it's more almost more of a PR uh, value, I guess, to say, oh, we, we were notified that there's, you know, one in 10,000 chance we're going to get hit. So we, you know, we have maneuvered out of the way. Uh, mm. It's it's a um, so I, that that really hasn't come up as, as necessarily a, a big driver for us to, to add propulsion. Propulsion for us would be coming to play if we were to uh, maintain our orbit or, or change mm change altitude, like lower altitude to get higher resolution. Yeah. That's kind of how we look at it. I think the, but I think in general though, space debris is going to, I think, yeah, in, in the future, it's going to continue to be an issue. I'm just not sure propulsion is going to be the solution for trying to avoid it. Um, I think, you know, it, it, it's going to be more of a, how do we get people to ensure that they are responsible operators and de- deorbiting in a time that mm. uh, is responsible uh, and and not cluttering unnecessarily uh, the Leo space with um, you know tens of thousands of, of satellites. Okay, let's shift um, gears and talk a little bit about the customer side. So one thing that I'm always you know fascinated with and curious about when we talk about business models like this, where you know it's um it's basically it's using space technology, but clearly for the benefit of a and selling to a non-space um, customer group on earth like in, in your case uh, i guess let's let's leave let's leave the government customers to one side that's a special case mm-hmm. but, but like the the energy customers right the oil and gas customers who probably by and large people who don't really i assume have much space knowledge nor do they technically care that um you know the data comes from space how was it trying to sell to those people and Talk a little bit about that experience. You're kind of penetrating a non-space, a non-space savvy customer. Yeah, I'm really. I think that's a great question because I think that question should be posed at anyone operating a space business. Because at the end of the day, no, I do. While space, <laughs> as yeah, a venture capitalist, while, I do. Right, because at the end of the day, because space is sexy. Uh, and people like, and, and that can help to get your foot in the door occasionally. Like, oh, there's this kind mm-hmm. of cool space company that wants to talk to you. And that can pique people's interest and maybe can help you get your foot in the door and differentiate from some of the other non-space solutions. Um, but very quickly, if you don't actually, if you can't show that this, at the end of the day, this is going to either help make your customer more money and or save mm-hmm. them a huge amount of money and, mm-hmm. um, and and be you know and and help them with regulatory items and be a good you know PR tool and then add a tremendous amount of value then then yeah the space thing that that wears off very quickly um, so you really have to have a it, yeah it's like space is, is just that opening salvo to maybe get your foot in the door and then and then after that. It's almost not even part of the discussion. It is what is the value you're bringing and how am I mm. solving a very specific problem uh, that's going to make you money, ideally make you money, if not save you a mm-hmm. ton of. So I think mm-hmm. that that's always been critical for us. And that's why we've been very focused initially on this go-to-market for the pipeline operators, because we know we can do that. Um, and it's been resoundingly accepted uh, and, and we're starting not only number of contracts we're getting, but even strategic investment from these pipeline operators now too. So it is, that's the big signal and, and that's needs to be the focus and not just get like the, the space stuff and even the 
hyperspectral stuff. That also no. is not, they don't really care about that. It, sure. it is really solving the problem. So the space and the hyperspectral should be effectively a black box uh, to the mm -hmm. customer. It is, what are we solving? How are we solving mm -hmm. it? That's that's has to be the focus. And if you fall too far in love with your technology or your the fact that it's space, then you're just going to be a flash in the pan. So that's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a hard lesson to learn, but that's... Um, that's the reality. Yeah. As, again, as a VC guy, space VC guy, I fully agree. And I really hope that listeners who are thinking about being space entrepreneurs, at least the ones who are space entrepreneurs selling to non-space customers, you they really need to take that lesson to heart. Because yeah, at the end of the day, the customer doesn't care. It's it's from space. Um, so where then, I don't know, 10 years down the road or whatever the right time frame is, where what's your vision for the company? Where would you like the company to see? Where, where would you like to see the company, Robert? Right. No, it's a great question. So uh, obviously, we're, we're adding more and more capacity when we launch more and more satellites and and really what we're really interested now is um what we're seeing a lot of our energy customers really interested in is this whole life cycle uh management and life cycle monitoring service capability uh from tracking uh hydrocarbons or methane or oil from extraction from the ground so oil wells and methane uh, fracking activities through transportation, so pipeline monitoring, uh, consumption, uh, so consumer and industrial consumption. And then the last critical piece, offset. So, and that comes into the play with looking at uh, carbon credits and carbon credit marketplaces. Mm -hmm. um, we think that orbital sidekick or uh, can play a role in every single part of that life cycle um, and in terms of monitoring and ensuring that emissions are, are being accounted for and limited to the highest degree possible, but also tracking uh, each molecule of hydrocarbon from cradle mm -hmm. to grave. And then that will help with how companies look at their offset requirements, and and then the not just you know helping with the accounting of how many offsets a, a energy company may have to purchase or obtain to apply with regulation, but um, also being good stewards and uh, you know, building social trust um, and license to operate. But then also the carbon credit marketplace itself. How is that going to? There's the there's the the regulatory carbon credit marketplace, mainly more in Europe and, and other regions, mm -hmm. that, that's very substantial. But the voluntary credit carbon credit marketplace is growing very fast. Um, now, one of the issues, though, is that it is highly unregulated, um, and it's, mm -hmm. people don't really know how to trust that the offsets are doing what, what companies say that it's doing. So because we have this very, very high accuracy, precise way of, of measuring not just GHG emissions, but also what we found is that with our vegetative monitoring, we can do carbon mass measurements. So we can measure mm -hmm. the effective carbon mass in any kind of plants or trees or uh, areas like that. So that's really critical for these carbon credit offset programs, which are you know, looking at saving rainforests in Africa or South America or other regions. So, um, you know, being kind of that the that rating system, if you will, for carbon credit programs, and therefore letting lending uh, validity uh, and trust to car these carbon credit marketplaces, I think will really mm -hmm. allow those marketplaces to uh, take root and be a very like actually mature into a place where we're going from a billion dollar market to a trillion dollar market. Makes sense. So that, that's kind Understood. of, and that's not even 10 years out. That's something that we're looking at yeah. in the next few years, but it's, and then, you know, I, I, I think it's really about being the, the trusted verifiable source of intelligence uh, on a global scale for both commercial and government partners um, by providing that, that chemical fingerprinting for, for every, every square inch of the globe. I mean, that, that's really yeah. the goal. And, and, you know, I would also love, you know, I'm, I'm a space geek as well. I would love eventually send our, our spacecraft out uh, beyond the earth uh, as well. You know, right. it's always your dream, you know, sent to Mars or you know, the moon to Mars, asteroids, all that. I mean, the, the, those are kind of like the very far out things, right? Because um, I yeah, think hyper has a huge yeah, That would be Absolutely. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of looking in the future and I, I should have asked you before, but looking in the past, can you just give us sort of the brief summary how you got to do this? How did you come up with this business idea and decide to found Orbital Sidekick? Yeah, we... Um so my my co-founder Tushar Prabhakar uh, and I we we worked at a company called Space Systems Laurel uh, 
which is now part of Maxar. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And we have been working on um, some of the large geostationary communication satellites. We're also working on um, some, we actually worked a bit on the uh, SkySat program for Skybox, which is now part of the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and there's a bunch of other advanced systems um, programs we're working on as well. And, and so this is kind of the early 2010s. And uh, just noticing that people were really focused on building space infrastructure, throwing satellites up with mm-hmm. with high res optical instruments, um, but not really having a, a solid go to market strategy. Kind of like a if we build it, they will come kind of a market strategy, which is mm-hmm. which was okay at the time because space was sexy enough that I think venture money was flowing, but. Um, you know, there, there wasn't really a, a solid, uh, revenue plan. And, and again, it was really focused on high-res optical. Um, I've got a background in astronomy and astrophysics. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, I knew about hyperspectral imagery, mainly for looking at celestial objects, uh, chemical makeup of stars and planets. And, and Tushar had also previously worked for some energy companies, uh, energy startups. So we kind of combined all of this together into mm. a business plan mm-hmm. where we said, well, let's use high spectral resolution data uh, with small sats in order to solve a real problem within the energy sector, which is yeah. there are these pipelines are just monitored very ineffectively and efficiently and, and methane emissions, a huge problem. And there's a whole host of other uh, market opportunities that that this technology can unlock. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the origin story, if you will. It was kind of a, you know, many nights and weekends at the of, of just putting that together and, and then we formally kind of kick things off uh i would say bootstrapped for for a little while and starting in 2016 um just really tightened things up and made sure we had everything ready and then uh got kind of outside funding uh end of 2017 uh early 2018 yeah and just grown grown from there what's 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 a quick question what's the story behind the name orbital sidekick um you know i think it it really speaks to the way we view ourselves as partners uh for our end users so when we when we when we talk with a, a pipeline operator you know we're, we're really saying that you know we're we're providing a monitoring solution and service to you um and but but it really is a partnership where we're helping you achieve your sustainability goals, uh, your operational excellence and integrity program goals, um, and really helping usher you through the energy transition. And and so you know we're we're the, we're your sidekick in you know in space that's helping you achieve those. Goals. That makes sense. I think somebody should start a company called Orbital Wingman. There, yeah, so there you guys. go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry if that's too similar to your to your company. But um, yeah. Uh, Anyway, um, so just beyond Orbital Sidekick, um, any sort of other interesting trends you see in EO and space in general on EO? It could be anything like, I don't know, for example, are we done with all of the sensors? Is there stuff missing on the on the sensor side or or anything else you can think of that, that could be exciting in EO and in space at large? Um, well, I, I mean, I think we're, we're rounding out a, a good amount of the phenomenology. I'm sure there, there's others as well. I mean, I know we have SAR, but... Uh, mm. You know, continue to do like like a. I think there's more innovation on the star side of lidar that could come into play. Yeah. I think, um, uh, yeah. I mean, like I said, continue to add more spectral bands. That I'm sure some people will will continue to look at ultra spectral and things like that, and, and higher res optical. Yeah. And you know, uh, so I, I think that's just, you know continue to push the boundaries there, lower and lower resolution, more and more spectral. Uh, the uh, what I think is going to be interesting now is the in space. Um, servicing assembly and manufacturing place uh, mm-hmm. uh, marketplace and how that is I think we're still pretty far away um, you know five to ten years out but the infrastructure is starting to be thought through and built out mm-hmm. uh, and so are we going to you know how are the you know, we're, we're looking down but you know can we look we can look left and right mm-hmm. uh, sure. when we're in space and and help with that kind of the that in space servicing assembly and manufacturing marketplace, which I think will eventually be very critical as we look at a lunar, you know, lunar outpost and, um, uh, you know, or lunar gateway and, and continue to become more of an interplanetary uh, civilization. So that's kind of what I've been looking at a bit, um, or what's very intriguing to me, I should say. Um, and, and the government's investing in it too, which is really, uh, really interesting as well. Mm-hmm. 
Not fair enough. And then, then um, I think, you know, our final question, the podcast is always the same, which is about science fiction and your favorite science fiction, which could be anything, movie, TV series, books. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my favorite uh, science fiction series is, uh, see, it's, I, I believe it's called Remembrance of Earth's Past is the series name, but it starts oh, it's with the, the, trilogy, three, the, the, trilogy, three, the, the three body, yeah, body the three problem. body problem and uh, yeah, the dark amazing. forest and Earth's past. Mm -hmm. I think that's yes. probably my favorite. I've actually, re I've read, I've read that series at least twice. I think maybe excerpts of it even more than that. So I, I think it's, it's yeah. a fascinating piece. I think it's the, I mean, it's definitely made me rethink about whether we should be sending any uh, any signals yeah. out into the universe. Yes. Uh, the, the the dark forest theory definitely makes me uh, nervous about certain things. But yeah, uh, that, 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 that ship has sailed with the golden record and everything. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, but you know, I think it's uh, yeah, it's we'll see how things play out. Hopefully, I'll, I'll try to be optimistic, but. Yeah, but amazing, amazing books. I I fully endorse yeah. that. That's probably the most. That's probably the best written science fiction I've read since the 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 classics. Um, I would say so. Yeah, highly recommend yeah. to everybody. Yeah. Dan, when's your um? So when is when is the next launch of your satellites? Uh, so the next launch is uh the next SpaceX rideshare in uh, uh early next year, uh, Transporter Seven. So I think that's okay. currently slated for uh like March, April timeframe. Um, so, uh, you know, as we get closer to launch, I think that that data will get defined and, but yeah, uh, transporter seven. Yep. Terrific. No, ex exciting times. Of course, best of luck for that. And you know, look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for, you know, teaching us a lot about hyperspectral imagery mm -hmm. and, and the use cases and teaching me that there's no ultraspectral as well. And yeah, best of luck with, um, Orbital Sidekick and thank you again. Yeah. It was a pleasure being on. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. Once more, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple or Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an interesting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.